Well, good morning again. I ask you to turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We're going to pick up and continue with where we left off last week. As we do that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much this morning that you are our God, that you've made yourself our God, that you've made us your people. And God, we thank you that you've made us a, a church here in Fairdale. God, we thank you for how you're working here. And God, I pray that you would be working here in the next few minutes as we open your word. God, I pray your word will be strong and powerful here among us. God, I pray your Holy Spirit will be working, teaching us and convicting us and encouraging us leading us. Father, I pray that we would leave here this morning knowing our sin better, hating it more, loving Jesus better, following him better. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do that. God, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 12, verse 18. If you don't have a Bible and want to use one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 933. Many of us probably know the saying that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Or the only thing it takes to make a good alliance is, is a common enemy. Um, I think about this a lot when I'm, when I'm at work, because uh, I work at a, at a boys' home for, a group home for boys, and and, and often there'll be a couple of boys who don't really get along with each other that well, but as soon as one of us adult staff people come in and, and get involved, now they're kind of ganging up, teaming up, um, supporting one another in, in what they're saying, and, and, and those kind of things against us, because they're, they're uniting themselves against a, an enemy or at least a, a perceived enemy. When I was growing up in Tennessee, often I would see uh, bumper stickers on cars that, that would say something like, I'm for, I'm for Tennessee and whoever's playing Alabama, right? When I was growing up in the, in the 80s, early 90s, Alabama was a, was a big rival for Tennessee. It's kind of similar to, to UK and UofL here today, right? Often people are for UK, and just because they're for UK, that means they're against, uh, against UofL. It also makes me think of this uh, concept when I was thinking about what happened during World War II, right? It's kind of interesting to think about. As soon as World War II was over, almost, uh, the U.S. and Russia were, were at odds with one another. The Cold War began just a few years right after World War II ended. Um, and, and, and so much so even that they split Germany in half and split the, the city of Berlin in half and built the wall there to separate them. And, and Russia had, had their influence, or the USSR had its influence on the on the, the east side, and the U.S. had its influence on the, on the west side. Um, but during World War II, they were allied together against the Nazis, against Japan. All it took was, was one good enemy, Hitler, um, to unite these two foes together um, against him. And I think about that because in our passage this morning, we're going to see something uh, similar, the same type of thing happening uh, to Jesus, Okay. In, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the Bible, in the New Testament times at least, there were, there were several groups of, of Jewish leaders. There were Pharisees that we know a lot about. There were scribes that we know a little bit about. There was another group that's 
not really in the New Testament that much, but it was around called the Essenes. And then there was another group called the, the Sadducees. And we're going to be looking today uh, at a group of Sadducees that, that come against Jesus. But before we do that, look, look with me. Turn back just a couple. Uh, it's just the same page, actually, in my Bible. Uh, to, to Mark chapter 11. Look at verse 27. It says, They came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And so here you have the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, all allied together um, against Jesus. Again, in chapter 12, verse 13, it says they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. And so here we have the Pharisees coming against Jesus. And, and, and Josh uh, preached about that last week. In our passage this morning, verse 18, it says the Sadducees came to him. And, and they began to ask him a question. In uh, chapter 12, verse 28, it says one of, the, one of the scribes came to him, and they began to, uh, to ask him a question, to dispute with him, right? If we keep going down to verse 35, we see Jesus kind of on the offensive here. He's going against them now, and it says, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? And so here Jesus is going against the scribes. If we look down just a couple more verses to verse 38, and in his teaching, uh, Jesus said, beware of the scribes. Again, he's going against the scribes, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and, and like greeting in the marketplaces, and, and, and it goes on and on about them there. And the point here is that the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes were not necessarily friendly with one another, and yet they have a common enemy in Jesus, and so they begin to unite forces against him here, okay? This is the, the first time that we've heard about the, the Sadducees in the Gospel of Mark. The Sadducees were a smaller group. They were smaller than the uh, then the Pharisees, they have much less influence over the people than the Pharisees did. Um, they were uh, connected to the priestly class. In fact, when Jesus was crucified, the, the high priest was Caiaphas, and he was a Sadducee at the time. And so the, the Sadducees and, and the priests are connected to one another. Most of the high priests were Sadducees. Um, and, and they were kind of a uh, wealthy, um, aristocratic group, more so than the Pharisees were. In fact, just a few passages ago, back in chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, when Jesus cleanses the temple, remember they have the, the, the table set up there and they're, and they're selling the, the, uh, the different offerings and they're doing the money changing and things like that. There, there's some suggestion that maybe those were Sadducees that were in the temple doing that. And so this is the first time that Mark mentions the Sadducees by name, but they might have, have been there in that, in that passage before. Um, unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees denied the resurrection. So the Pharisees believed that there was a resurrection. Uh, the Sadducees believed that there was no res resurrection. They believed there was no life after death of any kind. In our passage this morning, verse 18, um, the very first verse, that's how they're identified. It says, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And so the Sadducees were known for denying uh, the resurrection. Also, unlike the Pharisees, uh, they, they probably denied the existence of angels or spirits of any kind. And so they probably, we don't know for sure, but the Sadducees probably uh, didn't believe there was a soul or spirit or that kind of thing. They were just kind of materialists. The body is what there is, and, 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 and that's that. Um, unlike the Pharisees, they denied the oral tradition. So the Pharisees had the, had the Old Testament, and then they had all these oral traditions, these laws that they had written up in, in place uh, to go alongside the Bible. And the Sadducees said, no, we don't, we're not going with you on that. We're not believing that. We're not going to do the things that you tell us to do. Uh, they were against the Pharisees in, in that way. And then unlike the Pharisees, 
the Sadducees also only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. So they didn't think the prophets were, were from God. They didn't think necessarily the writings were from God. They believed that the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that was their only Bible. That was their whole Bible. Okay? And so there were some, some differences here, some important differences between the Sadducees and, and the Pharisees. Um, and, and in fact, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like each other. They were, they were enemies of each other. Um, and, and they were usually on opposite sides of debates and, and arguments. Listen, as I, as I read from Acts chapter, chapter 23, we see a, a, an episode here where the, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees come against one another, and Paul is able to use it to his advantage, okay? So Acts chapter 23, verses 6, 7, and 8. Now, when Paul perceived that one part, so there's this group that Paul's talking to, and they're hostile toward him, and so when Paul perceived that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part was Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And so they they were so much against one another that when Paul was, was in this predicament, he was able to kind of divide and conquer right? And bring up the resurrection. So now instead of the Pharisees and Sadducees fighting against Paul, now they begin to fight against one another. And, and so we see them not liking one another, not agreeing with one another, not being united with one another um, until Jesus comes along, okay? The Pharisees had their chance to trap Jesus and to, to try to discredit him in front of the crowds. Um, and, and now it's time for the Sadducees to take their turn. And then next week when uh, when we look at the next passage, we'll see that, that it's the scribes' turn to take, to take their chance. Uh, the Sadducees probably, they, they were wanting to discredit Jesus and to make him look bad, but probably they were also wanting to show their superiority to, to the Pharisees, right? Not only they wanted to make Jesus look bad, but they also wanted to make the Pharisees look bad, right? The, if the Pharisees, you know, you guys can't trap him, you guys can't come up with something that's going to that's gonna, uh, show, show that he doesn't have the authority that he pretends to have, now let us, let us show you how it's done kind of thing. The Pharisees had tried last week with a political question asking about Caesar and who do you pay taxes to. Now the Sadducees are going to try with a, with a theological question. Okay? Read with me Mark chapter 12 verses, eight through, or verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him, came to Jesus, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, and leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. 
you are quite wrong. We're going to look at this passage today in, in three parts. Uh, first, we're going to see the Sadducees' question. Then we're going to see the, uh, the answer that Jesus gave. And then we're going to end by looking at the, the emphasis that Mark puts on this. Why did Mark even include this in his, in his gospel? What is he trying to teach us through this passage? But first of all, let's look at the question from the Sadducees in verses 18 to 23. Notice they call Jesus teacher, right? The Sadducees who say there's no resurrection, they come to Jesus and they say, teacher, Moses wrote for us. And they go into this, into this story, into their question. That's the same thing that the Pharisees called him in chapter 12, verse 14. They also called Jesus teacher. Um, it, it could be that they're being sarcastic toward him and, and, and kind of using that as a, as a derision. You know, you say you're a teacher, so we're going to pretend like you're the teacher. Um, it could just be kind of a customary or formal way of, of addressing uh, uh, someone traveling around teaching like Jesus. But, but either way, they're, they're not being sincere, right? They're, they're, not, they're not looking at Jesus as a true teacher. They're not looking at Jesus as someone that they can learn from, someone that's going to teach them what, what God says. They're not recognizing him as a teacher that's truly sent from God, and, and they're not seeking to learn from him. They're not asking this question because they want to know the answer to it. They're asking this question because they want to make Jesus look foolish, okay? And so they ask this question, but before they get to the question, they have to kind of set up the premise, set up the story that they're talking about. So they, they, they tell this story about this woman who has a husband, and her husband dies, and he leaves no children. And so then the husband's brother marries her, and, and they're married for a, a time, and then he dies and also leaves no children. And so then the third brother marries her, and he is married for a while, and then he dies, and, and again, they have no children. And that happens seven times. Seven brothers marry this woman, and all seven of them die without leaving a child. And so then the question is, in the resurrection, whose husband will she be? Okay? Well, this, this, uh, this premise, this story comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's a, it's a real thing. They're not just making up, uh, making up some kind of silly scenario. It's, it's, it's a real thing. And so listen to, uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 25 as Moses is, is explaining this requirement for the people of Israel. This is, I'm starting reading in verse 5. He said, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to, uh, to per perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Okay? That's a bad thing. You don't want to be known as the man whose sandal got pulled off. You definitely don't want to be known as the man who got spit in the face in public, right? Um, what's going on here is a, a fairly specific requirement in the, in the law. It is a requirement for uh, for a family situation where you have a, a wife and a husband and a brother of the husband all living in the same household, okay? And what would happen would be if the, if the husband were to die 
and the wife is left alone with no children, with no heir, then the brother is to take her as his wife, is to marry her, have children with her, and the first son that they bear shall be considered the dead husband's, the dead brother's child. And, and this was for a few reasons. For, for one thing is it preserved the brother's name. It preserved the dead brother's name, that, that his, his line didn't end, but he would have an heir um, that, that would perpetuate his name. Okay? The firstborn son to the second husband was to be named after the first husband. He's to take his name, and he's to succeed him and, and, and continue his line in that way. A second purpose is, it, is to preserve the inheritance so that the inheritance, the, the first brother's possessions, don't go to a, to a foreigner, to someone from outside the family, right? If, if, the husband, if the first husband dies and leaves the widow with no children, and then she marries someone else, and, and, and they have children, then the first husband's property and inheritance will go to, to that son. So it's to keep the inheritance in the family line. And then the third reason is it's to preserve the widow. Um, it, it was difficult, if not impossible, for a for a childless widow to have a, a secure place in the world at that time. Um, she would have no one to, to care for, for her, no one to provide for her, um, and, and that was difficult, right? The, the biblical story you may be familiar with of, of Ruth and Boaz and, and uh, Naomi is not exactly the same situation. It's not Levitical marriage like this. It's, it's a little bit different situation, but it does show that the, the wife whose husband dies with no children leaves the widow in a very precarious situation. And, and, and this requirement of the brother to, to do that would, would, would help take care of her in that situation. And so that's where the Sadducees are beginning with. They're beginning with this, this law from the Old Testament, but they take it to an extreme, right? They could have just said, what if a, what if a woman dies with no child and her brother, his brother marries her and then he dies with no child? Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Because you still have the same problem. There's still two husbands in the resurrection, right? They could have stopped with just two, but they don't. They take it to an extreme to try to prove a point. By, by bringing out seven different, different husbands, okay? It may have been a real case. There, there's some, some that suggest maybe there was a, a real case that was kind of well-known at the time of these seven brothers this happened to, um, but we don't know that for sure, but we know that they're using the situation um, to try to stump Jesus. And this could be kind of a common question that they, that they would use to stump the Pharisees, right? I can see the Sadducees and the Pharisees getting into debates about the resurrection and the Sadducees saying, oh, yeah, well, what about this situation? What about this, this woman who has this husband and he dies and his brother marries her and, and then he dies? And that happens seven times. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And the Pharisees having no answer to that. I can see them taking that question and, and transferring it to Jesus to try to publicly humiliate him the way that they have done so often with the, with the Pharisees. Regardless... It's not a sincere question for Jesus, right? The Sadducees are not concerned about whose wife this man will be or who, who's, uh, whose husband will be this. They're not concerned about who will be this woman's husband in the resurrection, right? The Sadducees don't even believe there's going to be a resurrection. This is not a, 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 a sincere question. They're not, they're, they're not looking for a real answer here. This is not something they stay awake at, at night thinking about and worried about and, and wanting to get the, the answer to. They're trying to show how ridiculous the resurrection is to begin with. They're trying to trap Jesus. The question itself really is a, is a pretty simple one. It's just who's, who, whose wife is this woman going to be in the, in the resurrection? And they thought there would only really be two answers that Jesus could give. They thought they kind of had him, had him hemmed, in, hemmed in, had him kind of pigeonholed, where he could only give one of two answers. Either, uh, either he had to believe in polygamy, and so the woman's going to be everybody's wife, and she's going to have seven husbands in the resurrection, which they didn't think was, was true, and they, and they didn't think Jesus would say. Or Jesus would have to deny the resurrection. 
They didn't see any other way out for Jesus. Either he had to say she's going to be everyone's husband or she's going to be everyone's wife or there is no such thing as a, as a resurrection. Okay? That was their purpose. That was their question. That's why they're asking this. They're simply wanting to humiliate Jesus and wanting to ridicule him in, in public. Okay? I, I can think about this um, and, 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 and I can think about kind of a warning for, for me and, 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 and for some of us, right? We need to be careful that we don't put ourselves in the same situation that the Sadducees are in here. It's okay for us, it's definitely okay for us to approach God and to, to have questions and to ask questions of each other and, 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 and those kind of things, but we should never approach God in, in such a cynical way as the Sadducees do here. We should never approach God in such a skeptical way that makes him answerable to us, right? That's what the Sadducees are doing here. They're, they're coming to Jesus and they're asking him this question and, and they're trying, what they're trying to say is, we know more about the resurrection than you do. Admit to us that we're right, right? Admit to us that you don't really know what you're talking about. Show us that, that, that you're wrong. We should never come to, to God that, that way. God has the authority and, and we must answer to him. God's word is our authority. We must answer to it, not the other way around. When we open the Bible, we don't stand in judgment over it. We don't decide whether it's true or not. We don't decide whether it's good or not. We don't decide whether it's worth following or not. We don't stand in judgment over it. We ought to submit ourselves to its authority. It stands over us. It judges us. It teaches us. It rebukes us. It encourages us. It leads us. The Sadducees had gotten this exactly backwards. And it's an easy mistake to make. And we need to be careful that we don't make the same one. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus encourages his, his followers to, to seek and to knock and to ask. And he tells them if they seek and if they knock, then they'll find and it'll be open to them. And if they ask, he says, it will be answered. But the Sadducees were not asking the way that Jesus is talking about there. The Sadducees are not asking sincerely. They're not looking for an answer. They're looking to ridicule Jesus. In spite of their insincerity, in spite of their uh, plan to try to trap Jesus, he does give them an answer. It's not exactly the answer they were counting on, uh, but he does give them an answer. And his answer we can look at in, in three parts as well. Okay, so his answer has three parts. First of all, in verses 24 and 27, he tells the Sadducees that they are wrong. He tells them straight up they're wrong. In verse 24, he says, um, he says, uh, is this not the reason you're wrong? And then in verse 27, he says, you are quite wrong. You're very, very wrong. This is not the first time that we've seen Jesus speak so directly like this in Mark's gospel. In chapter 7, uh, verse 6, he refers to people as hypocrites. In chapter 9, verse 19, he, he talks about this faithful, or sorry, this faithless generation. In Mark chapter 10, verse 5, um, he says, because of their hardness of heart, the situation is the way it is. In Mark chapter 11, we looked at just a few weeks ago, is the cleansing of the temple, where Jesus comes into the temple and not only speaks kind of directly and, and, and harshly to people, but he makes a whip and uh, and, and starts uh, turning over tables and, and things like that. And here in this passage, he speaks very directly to the Sadducees. In verse 24, he says, uh, he says is this not the reason that, that you're wrong? And, and, and that's a, in, in the way that's written in Greek, he expects a yes answer. So in English, it would be kind of like saying, 
Um, it would be kind of like saying, this is wrong. This is why you're wrong, isn't it? And the answer they expect is, yes, this, this really is why we're, why we're wrong. In verse tw- 27, he says that they're quite wrong in the ESV translation. Very, very strong way of saying that they're wrong. And in some other translations I found interesting, the NIV says that you're badly mistaken. In the New Living Translation, it says that you're in serious error. In the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it says you're badly deceived. In the New American Standard, it says you're greatly mistaken. In the Weymouth Translation, it says that you're, you are in grave error. And in the Young's Literal Translation, it says that you have gone greatly astray. It's a bad situation they're in. And, and, and Jesus is very direct with them and tells them, you are wrong. In our, in our culture today, one of the worst things that you can do is say that somebody's wrong. One of the worst things you can do is say that somebody's wrong, um, and, and, and especially doing that to their face, right? It's one thing to say someone's wrong. It's someone else to tell someone they're wrong while they're standing there looking at you. Um, doing so in our culture makes you intolerant. It makes you a bigot. It makes you uh, arrogant. And, and yet, listen, as Christians... Sometimes we have to stand up and say so. It's our conviction that the Bible is true. It's our conviction that the Bible is true, which means other things are wrong. And as Christians, sometimes we have to stand up and and say so. Now, we don't always have to, right? We don't always have to make a big issue out of something that's that's not necessarily a big issue. We shouldn't try to be more offensive than the the gospel is. We shouldn't try to be more offensive than, than the scriptures are. There's some things the scriptures don't talk about directly, and there's some things where we have freedom to have different convictions within a, within a common understanding, right? And we talk about this kind of stuff sometimes. But there's some times where we do have to make a big deal out of things because there's some things that are big deals. And in those cases, when matters are clear, when matters are, are central to the, to the gospel message, we have an obligation to take a stand regardless of the consequences that might come, regardless if we're called a bigot, regardless if we're called arrogant, regardless if we're called intolerant. The truthfulness of the resurrection is one of those matters. The truthfulness of the resurrection is one of those issues, and Jesus is very direct with the Sadducees. He's very direct here with those who would teach against it and who would lead others to not believe in it. The Bible says that there is a resurrection, and Jesus tells them so. When he tells them, they are quite wrong. They're badly mistaken. They're in grave error. And as religious leaders, they're leading other people into grave errors as well. The second thing he tells them, he says that, that, that they're wrong because they're ignorant of the Scriptures. They're wrong because they're ignorant of the Scriptures. These men, these Sadducees, were, were religious leaders. They were supposed to be uh, the teachers of Israel. They, they were supposed to be the ones who knew the Scriptures. And, and yet Jesus says they don't know what the Scriptures say. They don't know what the Bible says. They're ignorant of the Scriptures. Even the Scriptures, you, you know, it, you might say, well, okay, there's a resurrection, but it, that's taught in the New Testament, right? And the Sadducees only believed in the, in the, in the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But, but even in those books, there are, are allusions and, and maybe even clear accounts of a life that's coming after this one, Okay. In, in Genesis chapter 5, listen, you don't have to turn here, but listen to this, because this is, this is striking. In Genesis chapter 5, we have this genealogy. It's a list of, of, um, it's a list of the, the descendants of Adam, from Adam to Noah, okay? And it goes through, and it's, it's this kind of repeated, repeated um, 
uh, kind of stock way of saying it. So, so verse 6 says, When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Okay? And this phrase, and he died, keeps being repeated. So Enosh had, had lived 90 years. He fathered a boy named Kenan. And then it says when Enosh was 905 years old, he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. This phrase keeps going, repeating over and over and over until we get to verse 21. Verse 21 says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. It doesn't say Enoch died like all the others. It says that God took him. Okay? Well, that's not a clear expression to, to him living with God right now, but it at least raises the question, right? Why is he different than the others that have died? He didn't die. He is, was taken by God and is with God now. Look at, a, at or listen to another, another um, passage, Genesis chapter 22. This is even more clear, Genesis chapter 22. This is a story you might be familiar with where Abraham has his son Isaac and God calls him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And so he's taking him up to the, to the place of sacrifice and Isaac is pretty smart and he starts to realize uh, that there's no sacrifice. There's nothing there for them to, to sacrifice. And so listen to verse five. Um, Abram said, to, uh, this, this is right before uh, Isaac asked that question. Abraham said to his young men, they, they traveled and they were getting close to where they were going. And so he, he's talking to the, to the servants here. He says to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. His, his plan, the reason he was traveling this, this way, the reason he was going to this place was to sacrifice Isaac. And yet he tells his servants, we're going to go worship God and then we are going to come back to you. Right? He doesn't say, I'm going to go sacrifice Isaac, and then I'm going to come back. He says, we're going to go worship God and then come back to you. And, and the Sadducees wouldn't have accepted the New Testament. It, it hadn't been written yet. But if we read Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, it talks about all these Old Testament saints. When it gets to Abraham, it says that Abraham believed even that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham was trusting and was believing in the resurrection, even then when God called him to sacrifice his son. So these, these passages are, are, are in the Old Testament, even if they're not um, as clear as, as some of the New Testament passages, they're still there. And the Sadducees, as teachers of the, of the, the Hebrew people, should have, should have known them. Jesus says, the reason that you deny the resurrection is not because the resurrection is not true. It's because you're ignorant of the Scriptures. It's because you, who are supposed to be interpreters, you who are supposed to know what the Bible says and are supposed to be teaching other people what the Bible said, you don't know what the Bible says yourself. And because of that, you're in grave error, and you're leading other people into grave error as well. He doesn't stop there, though. He points, Jesus points to a specific passage to prove to them their ignorance. And so he chooses Exodus chapter 3. He chooses it on purpose. Um, I think he chooses it on purpose because it was from the Pentateuch, where the, so the Sadducees would have accepted it. It's from Exodus chapter 3. They, they thought the book of Exodus was Bible. Um, I think he chose it because it's well-known among the Hebrew people and would have been well-known to the Sadducees. It would have also been, been well-known to the people that were around, kind of the audience that were around witnessing this. And so Jesus is talking here to the Sadducees, but really he's talking to the ones around listening and watching as well, right? And so, so he chooses it for, for that reason. And then I think he chooses it because it makes his point really well. And we're going to see in a minute that it makes Mark's point really well also. 
And, and the argument he makes here with this passage is, uh, is kind of a technical one. So look at chapter 12. Look at verses 26 and, and 27. He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He directs the Sadducees to, to think about the passage about the bush, the, the, the passage about the burning bush where Moses is, is there and God comes to him and, and, and God's leading him or telling him he's going to use him to lead the people out of slavery in, in Egypt. And one of the questions that Moses asks him is, okay, well, when I go to lead the people out of Egypt, they're not going to listen to me. They're going to think I'm crazy. Who do I tell them you are? Who do I tell them sent me to you? And God says, tell them that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus' point here is that, that God says, he uses the, the present tense verb. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He doesn't say, I used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all been dead for several years before God came to speak to Moses here at the bush. And yet after they're dead, Abraham says, I am their God. Not I was their God, not I used to be their God, not they worshiped me when they were alive on earth, but he says, right now, today, I am their God. That's Jesus' point. Jesus' point is one of the most well-known passages in, in the Bible that the Sadducees surely would have known. They knew what it said, but they were so ignorant of what it meant. They knew what it said, but they were ignorant about what it meant. They had died, and yet God was still their God. They were with him. Jesus drives the point home when he, when he says that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, right? He's saying that even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, they still exist somewhere with God on some level at that moment, and even today. Of all people, the Sadducees should have known that passage well. Many Christians, I believe, maybe even some of us, are in this same situation right now that the Sadducees were in. It's a shame, listen, it's, it, this, it's a shame, it's a scandal that many atheists, many people that deny that Jesus is God, many people that deny the Bible is true, it's a shame, it's a scandal that many of those people know the Bible better than people who believe it's true. And that's true. When I, was, uh, when I was working here as, as custodian, I would listen to, to podcasts. And one of the things I would listen to was an atheist show from, from Texas. And they had this, it was a call-in show. These people would call in and ask questions. And you had these two atheist hosts, and they would, they would answer questions and have these discussions. And often, Christians would call the show. And often, Christians would not know the Bible as well as these atheist hosts knew the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that all atheists know the Bible really well and all Christians don't. But I'm saying if you don't know the Bible well... That's a shame and a scandal, and that's bad. There's nothing worse at all than somebody who thinks they're right and the whole time they're wrong. There's nothing worse than someone who thinks they're right, they argue they're right, they're, but, but the whole time they're wrong. I was at work the other night, and there was a kid that was wanting to watch a movie, and it was, it, it was going to be off before he had to go to bed. He wasn't going to have time to watch it. And he kept arguing that on the back of the movie, it said it was 139 minutes, 
long, and he kept arguing that minute was an hour and 39 minutes long. And he would get mad, he was yelling at me, that it's, a, it's an hour and 39 minutes long. It says so right here, it's an hour and 39 minutes long. And, and, he, and, and he was so wrong, right? It's two hours and 19 minutes long because there's 60 minutes an hour, not 100 minutes in an hour. But he was arguing that, and, 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 and sometimes we do that. We can be so wrong about something and yet argue the whole time that we're right and, and not give an inch and not give our ground and, and, and stay there and, and be so wrong. This is the situation the Sadducees are are in, and, and it may be the situation that some of, some of you are in here this morning. The reason the Sadducees didn't know the Bible, the reason they were ignorant about the resurrection, is because they were ignorant of the Bible. Let's not be like them. If we believe what we say, if we believe the Bible is God's word to us, if we believe it's inspired by him with no errors, if we believe that it's able to make us wise to salvation, that it's useful for teaching and for rebuking and for reproving and and for making us fit for every good work, then let us at least know what it says. Let's commit to reading it, to knowing it, to prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit to use it to transform us into the image of our Savior Jesus. The third thing Jesus tells the Sadducees, the third part of his answer is here, he says they're ignorant, they're wrong because they're ignorant of the scriptures, and they're also wrong because they're ignorant of the power of God. Not only did they not know the scriptures, but Jesus says they also did not know God's power. One reason they didn't believe in the resurrection is because they did not believe that God was able to take a person who had died and bring him back to life again. They didn't think God could do that. These are religious leaders. These are religious people who did not know who God was. They did not know that he was a living that he was the God of the living, not of the dead, and they did not know what he's able to do. They did not know that he's able to take a dead person and bring him back to life. They knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The, the final thing I want to talk about today is the emphasis for Mark. Why is it that Mark put this story in, in his gospel, right? One reason, obviously, is because it happened. But there's a lot of things that happened that, don't, that didn't get put in the gospels. If you look at John chapter 20, John says that, that Jesus did lots of other things that are not recorded. And if they had been recorded, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to, to hold it all. Mark's one of the, is the shortest gospel. It's only 16 chapters long. So why did he choose to include this story? What's he wanting to show us through this encounter Jesus is having with the, with the Sadducees? I think he's wanting to show us something about eternal life. Not just that eternal life is true, but he's wanting to teach us, and Jesus is wanting to teach the Sadducees, not just that eternal life exists, not just that it's true, but I think he's wanting to teach us what eternal life is. Eternal life is not just a matter of quantity, but it's a matter of quality, right? Eternal life doesn't, doesn't just mean we're going to live longer. It means that we live differently. It's not just a longer life. It's a different type of life. This is the point Jesus is making when he tells them that in the resurrection, men will be like angels, Right? He says, we're going to be like angels. We're not going to be giving in marriage. We're not going to be marrying. We're going to be like the angels. The point Jesus is making here is that it's going to be different. The resurrection, heaven, is going to be different than life here on earth is right now. The Sadducees couldn't imagine a resurrection could be true because they were stuck thinking of the resurrection in the image of an earthly life. How could this woman have seven husbands, right? They were thinking that, that heaven, that the resurrection was going to be like life on earth. One commentator I was reading this week, William Barclay, he says this. He says, the Sadducees made the mistake of making heaven in the image of earth. Men have always done that. 
He says, the Native Americans, who were by nature hunters, conceived of a, of a heaven which was a happy hunting ground. The Vikings, who were by nature warriors, thought of a Valhalla, where they would fight all day, where at night the dead would be raised and the wounded would be made whole again, and they would spend the evening in banquets drinking wine from cups made from the skulls of their conquered foes. The Muslims were a desert people living in circumstances where luxury was unknown. They conceived of heaven as a place where men would live a life replete with every sensual and bodily pleasure. He says the Jews hated the sea and thought of heaven as a place where there would be no more sea. All men shrank from sorrow and pain, and heaven would be a place where the tears are wiped from every eye, and there would be no more pain. Always men have tended to create in thought a heaven to suit themselves. This is Jesus' point. Heaven, eternal life, the resurrection is not like what we can think. Another commentator, um, Edwards, he says this. He says, we can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in the womb can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto or the Grand Canyon at sunset. The resurrection life that Jesus is talking about is a different quality of life. It's a different type of life from what's expected here. It's a different type of life than what the Sadducees could imagine. It's a different type of life than what we're born into here on a fallen earth. The Sadducees also missed this. Listen, the Sadducees missed this. They missed the fact that this eternal life can be had right now. You don't have to wait till the resurrection to get it. This eternal life can be had right now. They're ignorant of the power of God because they had not experienced the power of God in their own lives. They had not experienced being raised from death to life, so they didn't believe that it was possible. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? Jesus told Nicodemus that if he was going to enter into heaven, he needed to be born again here on earth. Not by returning to his mother's womb and being born physically again, but by being born of the Spirit. The Bible's clear that we're not only waiting to die, but we're already dead in our sins. Dead to righteousness, dead to freedom, dead to the things of God. But the Bible's also clear that we can be made new here by turning from our sins by trusting in Jesus. In John chapter 4 that, that Austin read this morning before the sermon, in John chapter 4 there's a story of Jesus who goes to, uh, to this, this town and he's, he's uh, drawing water from this well and this Samaritan lady comes up to talk to him and he begins talking to her. And, and they have a, a long conversation there in John chapter 4. But the section that, that Austin read about, he asked her for water, or she asked him for water, and he said that if you knew who you were talking to, I would give you water, and, and it would be everlasting water, that you would never thirst again. And she says, give me this water always. The Sadducees doubted God's power to take dead men and make them alive, but surely it's not harder to make dead people alive than it is to take dust and form it into a man and breathe life into it, right? They believed that God was able to create man to begin with, but they didn't believe he was able to take a dead man and raise him back to life. We know different. We know the Bible says that God is able to raise from the dead. We know that God has raised Jesus from the dead. We're here this morning worshiping on a Sunday because we're believing in, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And we believe and trust in, that's our hope. That just as God took Jesus and raised him from the dead, God will take us and raise us from the dead. And if we're trusting in him, believing in him, turning from our sins right now today, we can have eternal life right now today. We're about to sing a, a one final song this morning, and as, as we're getting ready to do that, I want you to, to think about a couple things. 
right? If you're, if you're a believer, if you're someone who has accepted uh, Jesus, if you're someone who's received this, this new life already that we're talking about, then I want you to, to think about a couple things. First of all, rejoice in thanksgiving that God has made you alive. Rejoice in thanksgiving that God has made you alive, has, has, um, th- that he's given you life in Christ when you used to be dead in your sins, that he's, he's caused you to see the world and life now through a different lens, right? Before, before we were given new life, it would be ridiculous for someone to take time off of work, use their vacation time to go work in Ecuador for a week. Right? It would be ridiculous for someone to use their, their vacation time at work to come and, and serve here for vacation Bible school for a week. And, and yet we have people do that a couple of weeks ago. We have people right now using their vacation time to, to serve and work in Ecuador. Right? That's unheard of. But for those of us who have new life, who think about life differently, who see the world differently, rejoice that he's given you a new commitment and, and, and new joys and things that you used to hate now you love and things that that you used to love, now you hate. And then also commit yourself to not being like the Sadducees. Commit yourself to not being ignorant of the scriptures. Read the Bible. Read, study the, the Bible. Commit to studying them together with God's people. Commit to being at church and, and, and hearing the word preached and knowing what we believe because God has revealed it to us. Commit yourself to not being ignorant of the power of God. Don't doubt God's ability to make dead men alive. Commit to praying that God would give life to those around you that don't know him. Believe that God has the power to take anyone who's dead in their sins and make them alive in Christ. If he saved us, he can save them. Commit to sharing the gospel with those around you with the confidence that no matter what, God can raise them from the dead as well. But maybe you're here this morning and, and you've not received this new life. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're wondering exactly what, what, what I'm talking about I would love to talk to you about it. If you want to know more, hear more about this life that, that can be had for free, then, then feel free to, to come and talk to me during the last song, um, after the service is over. Um, we, we would love to do that. Maybe you've been attending here for a while and, and, and you're starting to understand what following Jesus is all about. Maybe, maybe you are, are ready to tell the world that, that, that you're following him, that you're committing yourself to him, that you're trusting him. We'd love for you to come and do that this morning as well. And maybe you've been attending here for a while. Maybe you're believing in Jesus and have been for some time. And, and, and maybe you're ready to, to, to follow Jesus in, in, in committing to his people. Not just to him, but to his people. We would love to, to be your church. We'd love for you to be part of us. Um, and, and I invite you to come down and, and, and talk to me about that as well. As we prepare to sing, let's, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much this morning that you are our God. God, we thank you that you have taken us who were dead, that you've made us alive in Christ. God, we thank you that, that, that new life can be had in Jesus. And God, we thank you that it's not just a, a, a longer amount of living like this, God, but it's a whole new type of, of living. Even your word says that, that, that you came to give life and, and to give it abundantly. And God, I pray that you would help us as believers to see things through this lens of the resurrection to see people through the lens of the resurrection, Father, to see situations, to, to see existence, to see life here on earth through the resurrection. God, we thank you so much for Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.